We're in Amos, the book of Amos, chapter 6. Finally getting back to our good study there. Let me pray before we uh, begin. Father, we're approaching your word now, so there's great power there and truth, and we ask you to put, put our hearts in the condition to receive what it has to say, and wherever we are, Lord, we can always learn from your word. We ask you to speak to us in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right. Uh, this morning, we're going to discuss people who are untroubled. These are uh, people who are very comfortable with their lives and uh, they're pretty much enjoying their lives and they're able to do their favorite things and they don't think very much about the problems of mankind or their own impending death. Sort of it's a right now thing. Right now is what matters and right now is pretty good. Whatever's happening elsewhere and actually Actually, there's kind of two, I guess you could say there's two broad categories of people who are untroubled. Uh, this room contains people that are untroubled because they have great faith in the Savior that God provided for them. They have seen their personal need for redemption, to be delivered from the judgment of a just God. They've heard that Jesus of Nazareth is God come in the human flesh and that out of a great love, he, the Bible says, became a curse for us that he might bring us to God. So these kind of untroubled folks rest their souls in the promise of the gospel that Jesus is indeed an all-sufficient Savior. Romans 8, 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And to know to actually know that God will not condemn us because of Christ is an incredible relief to a troubled soul, right? Amen. There's also the promise of Jesus himself, which he shared with his disciples at the Last Supper. He said, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So no matter what the troubles are in this world, no matter what the sorrows are that we have to deal with, those who trust in Christ's promises can rest their heart in those words, that there is a Savior and we have no fear of death because we are secure in Christ. So... For those folks, their faith in him keeps their hearts from being troubled. Now, there's another kind of person who is untroubled, and that's a very different kind of person. That's the person that rarely or never thinks about their soul. They don't think much at all about what I call the big questions. You know, the big questions. What is the world really all about? What's it like? What is my purpose here? What does God actually want from me? Am I in good standing with him? Should I expect that death will lead to joy? Those are big questions. Now personally, I never really had that kind of a trouble-free mind because I, from a little kid, I was always asking big questions. I always wanted to know what the real truth was. Somehow I'm wired just to ask those things. But um, when you're wired like that, you, you are troubled. Not weird troubled and not depressed troubled. Um, just sort of what is the great truth of the world troubled. That was my situation. And if you're not troubled by your own failure, there's something missing there. 
So I was troubled by that. I wanted to be a good person and I wasn't very good. And that troubled me. It bothered me that I was that way. I wanted to know why. And I wanted to know if there was a solution for that. And if you're not really good, then what will happen in that great accounting when before God someday? What will happen in death? So realizing your own failure to be good should push you toward Christ. But a lot of people fail to be good and are untroubled by it. They're not deeply troubled by their failure. They're just sort of uh, going through life and they shut the big questions out of their minds. You know, there's so many opinions, I don't even want to think about it. That kind of, that kind of mentality. Surely I'm not that bad. Or like Scarlett O'Hara, they say, I'll think about that tomorrow. <laughs> but what if God really is real? And what if he is the God that we find in the Bible? And what if he's actually holy? What if that's really true? What if what is wrong with the world is this innate human corruption that spoils everything, what the Bible calls sin? What if I need to be saved from myself? What if that's really true? Untroubled people don't ask those questions. And I must say, some untroubled people of that kind, they're even religious. They can be religious. Kind of a vague sort of religion, a vague Christianity, with a Jesus who uh, primarily exists to kind of soothe our worries and doesn't make any demands of us, because we all know Jesus is so loving he would never make demands on anybody of any kind. That, that kind of religion. But what if Jesus does make demands? What, what if he's actually God after all and has God's authority? What if Jesus, out of his great love, desires to trouble people who don't want to be troubled? What if he thinks that's good for us to have the kind of trouble that leads to him? Actually, when you read the New Testament, Jesus seems to go out of his way to trouble people especially when he preaches. You know, the Sermon on the Mount, if you actually read it, it's pretty troubling since it elevates our duties to God even above the Ten Commandments. This is what God requires of you. In fact, Jesus said you are to be perfect even as your Heavenly Father is perfect. I'm sorry, that's in the Sermon on the Mount. And we all know the comforting Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, in the Luke version, Luke chapter 6, verse 20, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Those are comforting words for troubled hearts. But right after that, he says, Woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. What's this woe business he's throwing in there all of a sudden? Now this isn't the kind of woe where you're stopping a horse. This is not an act in woe. <laughs> a woe is the pronouncement of a curse. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, he says, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. So if a woe is the pronouncement of a curse then, and riches and comforts and good food and laughter, that means those things have no value when you die. A life like that has no value before the throne of God, before God's judgment. They don't speak for us before the throne of God's justice. 
If one heart belongs to those things, if those things come first, then that heart is going to be judged and lose when a person dies. So you can see how decidedly troubling that would be for many people. As we go through Jesus' teaching, it isn't that those things in themselves are bad, it's, it's that those things when they're held in the heart is the primary things, and those are the first order things, then we've got it all wrong. And he's warning people about that. That's why he says, woe, woe to you. If that's what you're all about, your wealth and your happiness and your laughter and your good food and all of those things. He's very troubling. But he knows that those things crowd God out. So it's a good kind of troubling of hearts to try to get them to wake up to the fact that God comes first. And what his will is, is first. And all those things come after. You don't want to crowd God out. You don't want to be rendered dull by your love of things that he's not important. You don't want to make those things idols that you've given yourself to instead of him. For many, many people, especially in Western countries, because life is pretty comfortable here, uh, we don't worry about being perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. That doesn't even enter our heads. We just want to have good stuff and make it to the end. But we don't think about after the end enough. So we can have everything out of order in our lives, out of order according to God, according to Jesus, and think we're well off, think we're well, think we're good. We can do that. We don't much care what Jesus says. So Jesus concludes the Sermon on the Mount with these words. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock and when the flood occurred, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who has heard and not acted accordingly is like a man who built his house on the ground without any foundation and the torrent burst against it and immediately it collapsed and the ruin of that house was great. Fair warning. Fair warning. We can build what will last or we can build what will collapse. But we all are building with our lives, with our choices, with the things we care about. One thing we should never be, and I guess this is kind of the word of the day, is complacent. Don't be complacent. Don't be self-satisfied. Don't be self-righteous. We are not to be complacent people. And that's what Amos chapter 6 is all about. You see, you thought I'd never get there. But we <laughs> actually, you can read Amos 6 and just think about all the things Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount because they're talking about the same thing. We just have an Old Testament context for that same problem in Amos chapter 6. It's been a little while, so let me just refresh our minds real, a little bit regarding the Old Testament book of Amos and kind of remember where we are. Um, we're in the middle of the 8th century BC, uh, more than 700 years before Christ's time. God's people are living in the land that he brought to them. They were in a solemn covenant with God to live out his law and be a model people for the world to come and know the true God. And they have failed miserably for hundreds of years. The kingdom's been divided, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Amos is from Judah, but God picked him and took him away from his fig trees and his... Uh, flock to send him up to the northern kingdom of Israel to prophesy their destruction if they don't repent. 
So he's been warning them. If they don't forsake idols, if they don't forsake their many sins and return to the Lord, God is going to destroy them. They're going to cease to exist as a nation. And an empire is rising to the north of them called the Assyrian Empire. And it's been snatching up countries and they think they're safe. They think everything's good. And he's saying, they will come. They will come and take everything you have and take you too. God would use Assyria to crush them if they don't repent. So that's been the theme. So in chapter 6, Amos is talking about their complacency. So these are very dangerous times spiritually because overall things are going great for them. At least for the elites. I mean let's face it, the elites in Israel were living a whole lot better than everybody else. As is often the case in most countries in the world. The rich, the connected, the upper class. They're very powerful, they're very wealthy, they're really enjoying life. They're having it good. It's a rich country, they've been militarily successful. They're probably at the highest point in terms of um, economics and everything ever in the history of that northern kingdom of Israel. And you'll notice that Amos, Amos 6 starts with the same word that Jesus used. Whoa. Whoa. Woe to you who are rich, Jesus said. Woe to you who are well fed, Jesus said. Woe to those who laugh. And Jesus wasn't condemning people, like I said, for those things. He's talking about complacency. So here's Amos, Amos 6.1. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion. Well, that's interesting. That's the southern kingdom. Woe to those who feel secure in the mountains of Samaria. The distinguished men of the foremost of nations to whom the house of Israel comes. So I mentioned Zion first, which is not usually his focus. It's uh, the northern kingdom, but Zion is Jerusalem and Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom. So this complacency he sees in both Judah, the southern kingdom, and Israel, the northern kingdom. The both capitals. And since Amos is primarily sent by God to prophesy against Israel, it's kind of significant that he condemns complacency in both kingdoms here. The main focus though is going to be on Israel. So the leaders of God's covenant people, they should never be at ease when they care nothing for righteousness and justice. That should shake them up. When they are sinful and idolatrous and corrupt, they should not be at ease. They should be horrified. They should weep and howl and grieve their sin and come to God and seek His mercy. Amos told them in chapter 5, verse 14, Seek good and not evil that you may live. And thus may the Lord of hosts be with you, just as you have said. Hate evil, love good, and establish justice in the gate. And then in verse 24 of chapter 5, he said, Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Remember that? It's one of the great famous passages from, from Amos. This is what God is interested in, justice and righteousness. That's what God is compassionate about. But they don't share God's interests. His passions are not their passions. Rather than labor for justice and righteousness and take pains to encourage righteousness in the kingdom and justice in their kingdom, they're at ease. They're relaxed. They're untroubled they have everything they want. They're proud, proud people thinking of themselves as the foremost of nations he says here. 
pride and trust in their own power, in their own safety, their own military strength. Samaria, the capital of Israel, was built on, like many cities that um, were well thought out, on a very high prominence were three sides. It was almost impossible to even get up there. So it was a, and it was huge walls on top of this very high place where an army would have difficulty even getting up there. So they felt invulnerable, you know, they can't be taken. So Amos invites them to think about some other invulnerable places, other secure cities, other well-built cities that um, kind of were around opulent cities, wealthy cities, walled cities. Look at verse 2. So we don't know these names uh, very familiar typically, but I'll just talk about them briefly. But go over to Kalna and look. And go from there to Hamath, the great. Then go down to Gath of the Philistines. So Kalna was a very ancient city founded by Nimrod back in the, in the Genesis chapter 10 verse 10. It's about 60 miles from Babylon. In the 8th century BC the Assyrian Empire took it. And the Assyrians were notoriously brutal. They were truly a terrorist nation. I mean terror was their mode of operation. They were as cruel as they could possibly be. You see things like that in the world today. We just kill people to scare the next town. Hamath was a city north of Samaria, uh, conquered by Israel actually, um, under Jeroboam II. But they must have lost it because in 2 Kings chapter 18, the Assyrian general is speaking to um, the ruler of Jerusalem and he's bragging and he's trying to get them to surrender and he says that uh, the gods of Hamath could not save it from us. So there's an Assyrian general pointing out that they already took that. So it had fallen at some point. Gath, Gath was one of the five cities of the Philistines, one of the great cities of the Philistines. There's five major centers there amongst those people and it must have been lost as well. In fact, in Amos chapter 1, Amos is prophesying against Israel's neighbors. If you were here for the very first sermons of that, he, he makes a circle around Israel's neighbors and he prophesies against each one of those. You remember that? Well, when he got to the Philistines, he mentions Gaza and Ashdod and Ascalon and Ekron and he never mentions Gath. So he mentions four of the five Philistine cities there and he's prophesying, well, Gath must have already fallen by then. So it isn't even there. So, so Amos is saying, let's think about these cities that have already fallen. Because they thought they were impregnable. They were happy. They were rich. They were powerful. And they were all at ease until they were horribly, brutally conquered. The last couplet in verse 2 is a, a little difficult to translate, but it, it, it asks those at ease, are they better than these kingdoms or is their ter- territory greater than yours? So the gist of the idea is that they had no reason to be at ease either and you don't either even though they thought they were safe. Nothing about Israel could expect to survive the Assyrians unless God protected Israel. You think you've got strength in your walls and in this high prominent place where you're set and all of your wealth and all of that but you're not safe. You're not safe. Why should God protect you? They don't care anything about the Lord. They just want to have a good time. Verse 3 asks, Do you put off the day of calamity and would you bring near the seat of violence? That's a little hard verse 2. It, it seems to mean putting off, literally it's translated, it means thrust out 
and I think it's talking about their minds, their, their thinking there. They ignore or they, they push away the idea of calamity, but in their corruption and their injustice, which we've talked about in the past, their mistreatment of the weak and their perversion of the court system and all of that, they welcome the seed of violence in their minds. So they push out the idea of calamity, it'll never come to us, but they're, they're comfortable with violence and mistreating the weak and their own sinfulness, they're comfortable with that. So they don't thrust away um, the right things. They push away thoughts of death. They push away thoughts of judgment. They push away that God is holy. They drive that out of their minds. Just like modern people do. So if those thoughts ever happen to enter their minds or they make this horrible mistake and go to church with somebody and hear about it, they'll push it out again later. It, it'll come but they'll push it away. Many people outwardly scoff at the idea of being accountable to God. They mock that idea. They think that's silly. But inwardly, I think they do have some sort of awareness. But they have internal strategies they develop to push it away, to ignore it. It's like a person that um, spends and spends and spends but doesn't have much income. And people say, well, you can't possibly pay that off. They just keep spending, you know, those kind of people. What, what goes on in their mind? They're, they're pushing it away. They're just pushing away. There's going to be a reckoning someday, right? But it's like that with God's judgment. It's coming. It's got to come. I'm going to die. I'm going to face whatever there is out there. But they just push that away. They just don't want to deal with that or think about that. One strategy is to, uh, for in terms of spiritual things, is to substitute religious ideas to help them push away the fact that they're going to face a, a holy God. So they come up with new theories, right? Like reincarnation. Well, I used to be an ant, and then I became a salamander, and <laughs> then I was a duck, and then I slid back and was a dragonfly for a little while, and, and now, but I'm moving forward. Now I'm a human, so I must be going in a good direction, or whatever, whatever their, their belief system is like that. I, I will get as many chances as I need to get it right, so I can take my ease. Some people believe in sort of a Santa Claus God who mainly just wants to give us stuff to make us happy. That's what he exists for. Some people believe that everybody enters into some sort of happy place. I haven't been in too many funerals. Even people that I knew were pretty wicked that they just decided they were, they're all in heaven. They're, that's where they are. It's kind of, heaven is kind of a vague place. We don't really know anything about, but it's a good thing. Those are all common mental strategies to deny what is coming, which is judgment, and push it out, push it out from our minds. Now for the rich and powerful, they can just immerse themselves with other things. The pleasures of life and they just fill it up with that. Now if they're wise or if God is working on their heart they come to the point where all of that accumulation is pretty empty. And then if they if they're don't turn to God then they do other things that are more corrupted and bad but um, because their emptiness is real. But if they're fortunate and God's grace touches their heart they start to realize that it really isn't about this stuff. And then they move toward him, which is great. But often they think about, what's the next thing I can buy, or the next thing I can build, or the next thing I can enjoy? Just distractions. So Amos is prophesying to the elites of Israel mainly. And here he describes that life. Look at verse 4. Comfort. Those who recline on beds of ivory and sprawl on their couches. 
good food and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall. Music, who improvise to the sound of the harp and like David have composed songs for themselves. Wine and oil, verse 6, who drink wine from sacrificial bowls while they anoint themselves with the finest of oils. Man, that's the good life in the 8th century B.C. Though many people suffer under their rule. They were in a privileged world and they loved their privileges. And don't forget, we talked in chapter 5, they were very religious people. They worshipped, they sacrificed, they just didn't care about God. They kept him in their little religion box and they thought, well they thought God was bribable. That's why they offered him sacrifices. That bribery is the way they made their way in the justice system and that was their religious perspective as well. We'll give God all this sacrifices and we'll do all these rituals and he, he will like us. And he will, surely God appreciates our elevated status. I mean he gave me this life, this wonderful life. Surely he values it as much as we do. And, but the truth was all along that God wanted righteousness and justice. Being right with him and doing everything right according to his commandments and his moral order and being just with men and being fair and um, in all our dealings with other people. He wanted them to be about honoring him. Just like he deserves to be honored and treating their fellow human beings with true justice. If they had the slightest spiritual sense or the slightest inclination, a tiniest speck of true godliness, they would be grieved that they're an idolatrous people. They would be grieved that they're a wicked people, that they're an unjust people. They would repent and they would labor to put things right. But the last line of verse 6 says it all, yet they have not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. If they had hearts at all aligned with God, they would grieve, but they don't grieve. They don't feel that at all. So verse 7 says, therefore, so that's, this is the conclusion of these great truths, they will now go into exile at the head of the exiles and the sprawlers banqueting will pass away. Fun times will be over. Verse 8, the Lord God has sworn by himself. When God does that, it's getting really serious. The Lord God of hosts has declared, I loathe. You know what that word loathe means? Hates. I loathe the arrogance of Jacob and detest his citadels. Therefore, I will deliver up the city and all it contains. So God hates the pride of the wicked. I loathe the arrogance of Jacob. So judgment comes, whether we like it or not, whether we believe in it or not, it doesn't change anything. God decides when, he decides where, he delivers up nations when he wants to, to their destruction. And he's telling them that their time is soon, the time is approaching. First 9 and 10 are kind of interesting, they describe two scenes, they're a little bit hard to grasp too. The first one in verse 9, it, it seems like a familiar scene if you watch the news lately. People are hiding in a house during a siege is sort of the picture here and um, they're hoping not to be discovered. It will be if ten men are left in one house. That's a lot of people in one house, a lot of men. They will die, he says. They'll be found out. The second scene pictures somebody coming to remove a corpse from a house. There's Then one's uncle or his undertaker will lift him up to carry out his bones from the house and they will say to one another, to the one who was in the innermost part of the house, is anyone with, with you? 
and that one will say no one and he will answer keep quiet for the name of the Lord is not to be mentioned. Well that's a surprising thing to say. What is he, why is he saying that? Well I'm not totally sure but they have profaned God's name so often through their sinful prideful practices that when the judgment does come and they're hiding out trying to escape and they're dying where they are now they're afraid to say his name. It's just like by New Testament times you know no Jew would say God's name. They always said Lord instead of God's name Yahweh. They wouldn't speak his name. They were afraid to use it. Don't say his name. Let's not offend him anymore. So what's the conclusion of all this? Verse 11, for behold the Lord is going to command that the great house be smashed to pieces and the small house to fragments. So he's promising severe judgments to an untroubled people. He will once again remind them of why, why they will be crushed. He starts with kind of a funny question in verse 12, do horses run on rocks? You're supposed to say no. Or does one plow rocks with oxen? That's also a no. Yet, he says, you've done something equally but more seriously stupid or bizarre than that. You, the chosen people of God, the people of God's promise, well look at verse 12, yet you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. Those things are death and horrible to you. Righteousness and justice, that, those are the two words that repeat again and again throughout Amos. They were not righteous as regards God and they worked injustice all the time as regards their fellow men. They've been abject failures and they feel no remorse no grief, no sorrow, no repentance. They love sin and they delight to cheat people and oppress the weak and the poor. Yet, it says in verse 13, they boast in little victories. You who rejoice in Lodabar. And these, are, these are two cities that they had conquered. They, again, they were militarily very successful at this moment. You rejoice in Lodabar and say, have we not by our own strength taken Karnaim for ourselves? We are good, we are blessed, we are victorious. But God says, verse 14, Behold, I'm about to raise up a nation against you, O house of Israel, declares the Lord of hosts. They will afflict you from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of the Arabah. So they are given a choice. Believe God and repent or carry on in complacent, unrepentant, untroubled pride. They can choose each way. Now remember, an untroubled heart may be a wonderful thing if it's based in the right thing or it can be a horrible thing if it's based in the wrong thing. They are in the wrong place. This is God's world and the question everybody should ask is how do I stand with him? To, the, to be untroubled in this world does not mean you will not be terribly troubled when you die. Just because you're untroubled about it doesn't mean it won't be trouble when you die. You've got to know what's going on. And that's exactly why Jesus said woe to the rich and the well-fed and the laughing and those who get pats on the back for being good fellows. None of that will matter in the judgment. Not a bit. But that's where people take their comfort. The good life. It soothes the heart. It pushes the other things away. So let's bring this kind of home for ourselves in modern times. When disaster is looming, the greatest kindness you can do is to let people know how to avoid it. Right? 
That's why scientists measure volcanoes. They put little things up there with semi-active volcanoes so that there will be a warning if it's going to go off and everyone can run away. Or a tsunami. They, they have tsunami warning systems, right? So you can get that 20 minutes to get up high somewhere and survive. They, when calamity comes, you want to know in advance to save yourself. God's judgment is far more serious than a volcano or a tsunami or mass destruction in this world. Far more serious than losing our lives because he decides our eternal destiny. He really does. Our souls live on. So what's going to happen there? That's what matters. So the big questions have to be addressed. What is the truth of the world? Why do we exist? Are we really good? Are we worthy of heaven? Am I worthy of heaven? That's a good question to ask. Are we righteous before God? Obviously not. Then the question is, since it's not, I'm not righteous before God in myself, did God make a way for me to be righteous? Did he make a way? Yes. He made an amazing way, a shockingly beautiful way to be righteous. He satisfied his own justice, his own judgment on human sin fell on his son, Jesus, who undertook to bear the sin of the world upon himself, representing mankind. That's what the cross is all about. The greatest man who ever lived died for my salvation and yours. I say the greatest man because even though he was poor and held no office and led no armies and built no cities, he was the greatest man that ever lived because he was truly holy and wise beyond all other people and he lived this sinless life and he told us the truth he told us about ourselves and he told us about the God who made everything and he told us what his purpose was on earth in fact he said Mark 10:45, even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many he told a grieving woman I am the resurrection and the life he who believes in me will live even if he dies and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And then he asked her, do you believe this? Faith is the only thing we can bring to God. A living faith, a humble faith, a repentant faith, a grateful faith, a faith that receives everything that God has to say to us. That we are not good, but he was good for us and he saved us. And when we know him, we experience this work in us that he starts to do. He starts working good in us. And you know what that looks like? Righteousness and justice. Those things start to come out of us because he's doing them in us after we're rightly related to him. Then we'll be untroubled in the good way, the right way, by resting in his love for us, not by pushing him out of our minds. Let's pray. Lord, you are faithful to trouble us when we need to be troubled by our own sin. You've always spoken the truth to us. So by your gracious spirit, Lord, open our ears and keep them open so that we may rest in your love that's given to us in the gospel. We ask this in the name of our great Savior, Jesus, your Son. Amen.